So let's read a few verses from Philippians chapter 4, and then we'll look to the Lord in prayer. Verse 19, reading through to the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord says, But my God shall supply all your need, according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And we look to the Lord that he will bless the public reading of his word. Let's unite in prayer, please, and ask the Lord to draw near as the Lord has given help in the preparation. Now may he give help in the delivery of his word. So let's pray. Our gracious God and loving and eternal Father, we thank thee, Lord, we can bow in thy presence. We can lift our hearts to thee. We can call upon thee for the help and the grace that is needed. And we thank thee, Lord, that thou hast promised to give the Spirit to them that ask. And therefore, Lord, as I stand here, I stand as a candidate for the infilling of the Spirit. Lord, I ought not to and should not preach in the flesh. And therefore, to that end, I pray that thou wilt grant unto me the Holy Ghost, that thou wilt help me to speak as I would have me to speak. We pray, O God, that Thou will open up the hearts of all who hear, and that Thou would shut away distraction, and give us, Lord, a blessed time around Your Word. May Thou Thyself be glorified. Hear our prayer, for this we ask in the Saviour's precious and His worthy name. Amen. Now, this morning is the 40th, and I thought it would have been the final message on our series in the book of Philippians. But as I sat down to study, and I looked at these remaining verses, well, I found that there is more that can be said about them than would appear at first glance. There's too much to shoehorn into one message. There is a rich depository of truth that is found in the closing verses here of this little epistle. Now, just to recall and to refresh your memory, a number of weeks ago we thought from verses, we were thinking from verses 14 to 19, we're considering the subject, the support and the supply of the saints. And though Paul was content in Christ, the Philippians had done well to communicate with him in his affliction. That is, they sent him a gift that helped them out in a very practical manner. And from that support, we noticed the faithfulness demonstrated, the fruitfulness desired, and the fullness declared. And I trust we were challenged with our own responsibility to support the saints, those who are serving in the ministry of the gospel. Paul went on then to encourage these people that God would supply all their need. God would meet them at the very point of their need through the words of that wonderful verse, verse 19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And we notice there that it's those who have a personal relationship with God will have a plentiful resource from God and all because of a pleasing Redeemer before God. And we can truly sing every need He is supplying, plenteous grace He bestows. And that brings us to the last few verses of this little epistle. Now, letter writing is becoming a thing of the past. That is, with pen and paper at least. Now it's more so text messages and emails. But whatever the manner of communication, there are different ways in which you can sign off a letter an email, or a message. If it's more formal in nature, well, you can choose from words such as sincerely, 
or best regards, regards, kind regards, warm regards, different things like this, with appreciation, best wishes. If it's more personal in nature, well, you can sign off with something like love, or gratefully, or affectionately. Well, we have here a letter that has been written by a man under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and therefore the sign-off should be important to us. And the importance of it is underscored by the very fact that it's preserved for us in Scripture, and we can learn something from it. Now, the sign-off that the Apostle Paul gives to the Philippians in verses 20 to 23 really has three elements to it. Breaking it up like this, glorification, salutation, and benediction. We're only going to cover this first aspect, glorification, today, and we find that in verse 20. And it says there, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so this is really part one of the farewell to the Philippians. So firstly, notice with me the essence of glorification. Verse 20 is really a doxology. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now doxology, it comes from the Greek word doxa, that means glory. And a doxology, therefore, is ascribing glory to God. And this is what Paul does here. The heart of this doxology are the words, be glory. And in the original Greek, we could read it like this, be the glory. And all that's encompassed in that, worship and praise and honor and adoration. And this is what Paul desires that God alone would have. Now, there is a sense in which we speak of the believer's glorification. That which we will enjoy when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, when we enter into the fullness of our redemption, when we are changed and made like unto the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have that unhindered and unending fellowship with the Lord of glory. But Paul has in mind here uh, God being glorified. That ascription of praise and worship and honor and adoration would be given unto the Lord. Now it was common. It was common for Paul to include an ascription of praise or adoration or a doxology at the end of his epistles. For example, in Romans chapter 16 and verse 27, he writes to the only wise God, Be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Or we could think of 2 Timothy 4 and the verse 18, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was concerned, after all that he had written about giving glory to God, he wanted the Lord to have all the glory. Now this glorifying of God by Paul it is a fitting response to the truth. You see, the doxology of verse 20 is possibly evoked from the heart of the apostle by the preceding thought found in verse 19 that God has promised to supply all our need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But because this doxology comes right at the end of this little book, I believe that this response from the heart of the apostle Paul it's really evoked by all that precedes it, all that comes before, not just verse 19. How could the heart of the apostle 
not rise up in wonder and love and adoration and praise in the consideration of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done, what he himself set forth for us in those wonderful words in chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Who being in the form of God and all the rest of it. But you know, all that truth was not external to the Apostle Paul. It wasn't something that was sitting at a distance to him. It was something that had impacted him. It was something that had changed him. Here was a man who was delivered from eternal ruin by the power of the gospel. Here was a man who was now in possession of an imputed righteousness, a righteousness with which before he sought to try to obtain by his legal observance and religious practices, but now by faith alone in Christ Jesus, he had a perfect righteousness. He was delivered from eternal ruin. He was headed to heaven. And therefore, all this truth, it evoked from the heart of the Apostle Paul a doxology of praise and worship and adoration unto God. It springs up within him. It was his desire, his impulse to glorify God, to bundle up all those virtues, all his praise and all his gratitude and all his worship and honor. He wanted to present it and bundle it all up and offer it to the great God of heaven in response to the truth. You see, this is the desire to glorify God. It is a desire in response to the truth. And I go further and say it is the natural response of the child of God. When they hear the truth, they'll want to glorify God. They'll want to praise and worship and adore the God of heaven. This is why the verse is so often quoted and often prayed before we come to a worship service that they that worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You know, people might say, well, you call it a morning worship service. Do you know there's too much preaching of Scripture? There's too much reading of Scripture? There's too much exposition of Scripture? Surely we need more time for worship. But true worship is given in response to the truth. It is the doctrine of Scripture that draws forth the doxology from the soul. Let me repeat that. It is the doctrine of Scripture that draws forth the doxology from the soul. You see, we can't worship God, we can't adore God, if we do not know the truth about God. Truth should always produce joyous praise, loving adoration, humble honor in the heart of God's people. And what is that? That is giving glory to God. You know, this is seen elsewhere in the writings of the Apostle Paul. This desire that God would have all the glory evoked in the heart as a response to the truth. And the best example we have of that is found in Romans chapter 11. And in that chapter, the Apostle, he has been expounding the wisdom and the sovereignty of God in his saving purpose towards the elect Jew and Gentile. And after working that all out, after laying it all out before the people, well, in his heart it bursts forth in praise in verse 33, because he says there, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It's in response to the truth that his heart bubbles up in a doxology, and he goes on to say in verse 36, For often, 
and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The essence of glorifying God is a response of the human heart in worship, honor, and praise to the truth of who God is and what God has done. And this is, as the Shorter Catechism teaches us, the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Proverbs 16 and the verse 4, it tells us there that the Lord hath made all things for Himself, that is, for His own glory. Now, of course, we must understand that glorifying God does not make God more glorious than He is. There is a glory which is intrinsic to the very nature of God. He is described and identified in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, as the God of glory. And nothing created by God can ever increase His glory. That is because God is eternally and infinitely perfect. We could not add glory to God because that would mean that God could possess something additional. That He would have something that He does not already have. That He would be subject to change. And by definition, therefore, He would not be God for God is immutable. And so when we think of the essence of this glorification, it is really, as I said, it relates to that which is drawn forth from the heart of man in response to truth and is also seen in the life of the individual that's worked out in their lives. Now, can I ask you this morning, what is drawn forth from your heart as you hear the Word of God preached? Does worship rise up within you? Does gratitude spring forth? Does awe and wonder and praise fill your soul in response to the truth of the gospel? You see, that is the essence of what it is to glorify God. See, I believe that Paul knew that all that he had written, all these truths would have thrilled the hearts of these believers at Philippi, and therefore Paul wanted to instruct them. He wanted to direct them where their praise, their adoration, where their worship should be given unto God. Now unto God and our Father. Paul wanted no praise for himself. Paul wanted no honor whatsoever. He wanted to direct them to God. That's the essence of this glorification. It is response in the human heart to the truth of God, the response of praise, worship, adoration, honor, gratitude, all the rest. But secondly, this morning, there is the expression of glorification. By whom is this glory to be given? Who's to give this glory to God? Well, we read in Psalm 150 and the verse 6, Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. All, all without exception, and there are no exclusions, all are to glorify the Lord. The Really, the essence of our existence, the reason for our existence, is to glorify God. Creation around us glorifies God. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens what? Declare the glory of God. The creatures below us glorify God. 
The Lord himself said in Isaiah 43, in verse 20, that the beasts of the field, they honor me. The creatures above us, they glorify God. The angels are ministering spirits, and they gather around the throne, and they cry, holy, holy, holy. And Thomas Watson asked the question, shall all and everything glorify God but man? No, not at all. All are to glorify God. We are commanded in 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 29, Give unto the Lord the glory that is due unto His name. See, the Lord is the one who has created us. Psalm 100 verse 3, It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. And He created us with this chief end in view. For His pleasure all. All things are and were created. This is God's design and purpose for man. The purpose-driven life. Not what some modern, liberal, apostate preacher entitled the book. What is man's purpose? What's your purpose? What's all mankind's purpose? It is to glorify God. That is why He has created us. He created man in his own image and after his own likeness. And therefore, man, as he was originally created, was God-centered, not man-centered. Every thought, every impulse of man's heart at the beginning was to serve God, was to worship God, was to honor God, was to take delight in God. Now, while there are none excluded or exempt from this one great purpose, We can truly, we can rightfully say that God is not actively glorified by all men since Adam's fall. And we can see that in the world around us today. Not all worship God, not all honor God, not all praise God. That's very evident. Do you know God in His infinite wisdom has purposed it so that He will have glory from all men, both saved and unseen. And since that is the case, since all are going to glorify Him, I ask you this morning, are you actively glorifying God in your life? Are you praising the Lord? Are you worshiping the Lord? Are you honoring the Lord? Are you obeying the Lord? You know, if that is not the case, and if that's the way in which you continue through this life, and if that's the way you die, God will be glorified and he will glory, he would have his righteousness and his justice glorified in the damnation of your soul. You're yet in your sin. You're still self-centered and self-seeking and self-glory. God will have his glory from and in you one way or another. We exist to glorify God. It's very important to him. His glory, he said, he will not give to another. He is zealous for his glory, that he will be glorified. You read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. But the wrath of God from heaven is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And then in verse 21, with one of the reasons why God's wrath is revealed, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. The modern man gives glory to the creature, to evolutionary process. 
And in doing so, they rob God of his glory. There's others, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and they withhold from God the glory that is due to him. Now, we must not think that God's seal for his own glory, that he would be glorified by man, is in any way an egotistical selfishness on his part. God does not need our praise, our worship, our adoration, for he is infinitely and eternally glorious in himself. And yet, when man does glorify him, God takes great delight in that. And why is that? Because, because that is to man's benefit, eternal benefit and enjoyment. When the individual robs God of his glory, when the individual withholds from God his glory, well, God is in no way less glorious. No, no. But it grieves God because God looks upon such an individual as doing that which is eternally detrimental to their benefit and their enjoyment. And therefore, the zeal for his own glory is really rooted in his love for mankind. And it grieves him when he sees the glory that is due to his name given unto others or withheld from him because he knows the end of such an individual flows out of his great love for us. Paul here, he's actively, or he's dealing with those who are actively glorifying God, those who are the Lord's, those who can relate to him as our Father, as he says. And that leads us on to think of to whom this glory is given. Well, it's quite obvious. God alone is worthy of all glory. The title, God here, in the context refers to his sovereignty and his transcendency. He is the creator, and as such, he is master. He is upholder. He's the first cause. He's judge. And his very nature demands that we glorify him. He's the one with whom we have to do. But this verse, it lays a particular emphasis upon the Christian and their responsibility to glorify God because Paul adds, and our Father. God is our Father. That's an intimate term. That's a relational term. We've been reconciled to God. We've been adopted into His family. And we are to give God the glory as He is our Father. He's not a tyrant. We're not to merely view him as the governor, but he is our loving Father who helps us, who cares for us, who pities us, who provides for us. And that's especially seen in the giving of his Son, who is also worthy of glory and the Spirit as well. In the late 1600s, Thomas Cain, a non-during bishop, and that is one who didn't subscribe allegiance to William III after the Glorious Revolution in 1688. But that man, he wrote two hymns for his students in Winchester College at Oxford University. Those hymns, one was to be sung in the morning and one was to be sung at night. He added a third hymn, which was to be sung by his students who found it hard sleeping through the night watches. Each of those three hymns, well, they were an ascription of praise unto God. 
an invocation for God's blessings appropriate to the time of the day in which they were to be sung. And each of them finished off with the same stanza. Words which you and I know. Words which you and I have already sung this morning. Words which have become known as the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Twenty-five words. Probably some of the best-known words or single best-known verse in Christian hymnology and poetry. And yet they are, well, they are simple. They're not shallow. Oh no, these words. These words are memorable. We sing them to the tune of the old 100th because of its association with the Psalm 100. But praise, description of praise, is a very important aspect of this glorifying of God. We are to bless all creatures, are to bless the triune God for all blessings. So an expression of this glorification, not only by whom, it is to be given, not only to whom it is to be given, but we also think of how this glory is to be given. How do we glorify God? Well, we glorify God. I've already mentioned it. It tells us in Psalm 50, verse 23, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. And yes, singing and praise of God is a very important part of that, but there's many verses in the Word of God that teach us different ways in which we can glorify God. I'll give them to you. We can glorify God by confession of our sin. See, when we own our sin and make confession of it, we are admitting that the wrong is ours. And God is not to blame, and that God is righteous, and that He is holy. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 18, Joshua, he said to Achan, My son, Give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him. By confessing his sin, Achan would glorify the omniscience and the righteousness of God. We glorify God when we confess our sin. We glorify God by exhibiting a living faith in what he has said. Romans chapter 4 and the verse 20, we read there, He, that's Abraham, staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Abraham conducted himself in a manner that honored God. He lived his life that demonstrated that you could place implicit trust in the promises of God because he did believe that God was able to raise his son Isaac from the dead. That's why he went to Moriah. That's why he laid the wood on Isaac's back. That's why he took a knife with him. We can glorify God by exhibiting a living faith in what he said. We can also glorify God by fruitfulness, by exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. John Chapter 15 and the verse 8, we read these words, Hereby is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. To quote Thomas Watson again, he said, it is profe- It's not profession, but fruit that glorifies God. We glorify God by our good works and our loving deeds. 
Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. So let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. There are just a few examples. Confession of sin, a living faith, a fruitful life, good works, good deeds. Now in the Old Testament, the word for glory, it signifies weight. And a life that glorifies God is a life that is lived in the weariness of God's being. One that is influenced by God. Now let me give you an example concerning this. If you're at work and the boss walks by, you sit up straight and you pretend that you're hard at work, then in that moment it is the boss who is influencing you. It is the weight of his position and or power that is brought to bear upon you and makes you respond in the manner in which you did. And in a sense, it is to them you are giving glory. To them you're giving respect and honor and fear. Not God. Not the one who commands us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are to do our work, not with eye service as as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to man. A life that glorifies God lives in the conscious awareness of the weariness of who God is, the glory of what He is. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. We have an all-encompassing statement. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Yes, The daily common things of life can be done to the glory of God. I read an example of how we can drink a cup of juice to the glory of God. And I thought it was very instructive. And I adapted it somewhat, well, quite extensively myself. How can we drink a cup of juice to the glory of God? Well, I can look at the color of the juice in that cup. And I can thank God for the gift of sight. I can taste the sweet tanginess of those sun-ripened oranges and thank God for the gift of taste. I can draw nourishment from that drink and my body can utilize what it takes in. And I can praise the Lord for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I can humbly thank God that I have a choice of drinks in the fridge while others have to drink the muddy waters of a river or a sinkhole. I can remind myself that I do not deserve this juice. I deserve hell, where the tip of a finger dipped in water will not be permitted to assuage a burning thirst. I can be reminded that this cup of juice is a token of God's great care and provision for me and extrapolate my thoughts to think of God's great provision for me in the person of His dear Son. I can share my juice with others in love, not hoarding it to myself, but but letting them enjoy what I enjoy and benefit from that which I benefit. And finally, I can use the strength that it gives me to live a life To the glory of God, I can drink a cup of juice 
to the glory of God. As true brethren and sisters, living in the consciousness of the weariness of God, this is how we express glory unto our God. Don't be ashamed when you're out in a restaurant. Don't be ashamed when, well, it's only McDonald's, but you're there, but bow your head as a family and thank God for the food you're about to eat. Glorify God in the midst of those around you. That's what it is to glorify God. The essence, the expression, but finally this morning, the extent of this glorification. Paul writes here, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God's inherent glory. That's the glory that belongs to Him. Who He is. It is eternal. It is unchangeable. And it's infinite. But this chief end of man will go on forever and ever. This is what you and I will be doing throughout eternity. We will be glorifying God. That's what we read about in the book of the Revelation. It's happening in heaven at this very moment. They're around the throne and the Lamb, and they're singing, Worthy the Lamb, to receive honor and glory and wisdom and might and power and all those rest of things. That's what we'll be doing for all eternity. Paul, he doubles up on a phrase here. He doesn't say that now unto God and our Father be glory forever, but he says forever and forever. And in the Greek we could read it like this. Unto the ages of the ages. You see, we read in the book of the Ephesians that in the ages to come, he will show us the exceeding riches of his grace. And what will we do in response to that? Well, unto the ages of the ages we will glorify His name. That's what we're doing. As He shows us more and more and leads us from fountain unto fountain and reveals the magnitude of His glory and His power and His love and His grace, will we, well, unto the ages of the ages, glorify our infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. It is those who actively glorify God below. It is those who will eternally glorify God above, and only those. Then Paul, he finishes off this first part of his farewell with the word, Amen. Amen. Whatever way you want to say it. You know, it's a Hebrew word, and its meaning is, so let it be. Thomas Adams, the Puritan, he points out a fourfold meaning of this word, Amen. Number one, it's a confirmation of the heart's desire. You know, when we hear someone else pray, and we have a desire for that prayer to be answered, we say, Amen. And we add our amen to Paul's here because it is our desire. It confirms the child of God's heart desire that God would receive all the glory. It is a confirmation. But it's also an affirmation. It's an affirmation of her faith. Because, you know, you never say amen to those things that you don't believe. It was used in the Old Testament as a congregational response to give a strong affirmation or that they were in agreement. 
read about that in Nehemiah chapter 8 and the verse 6. Ezra, we read, it says there, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people. What? They answered, Amen, Amen. They were in agreement with Ezra with what he said. They bowed down and they worshipped. And we add our Amen to Paul's because we affirm. We affirm that we believe that God deserves to be glorified. It is also an acclamation. It is a confirmation. It is an affirmation. It is an acclamation of our lips. We add our amen to Paul as an acclamation that God in Christ the King, who is eternal, would be glorified. That He is worthy of our praise. We sang... Earlier, let the amen sound from his people again. And I asked the question, have we become a little bit silent in the church of Christ? Have we? Reactionary, possibly, to what we see in other places? But have we come a little bit silent? In the church of Jesus Christ, may the hallelujahs and the amens of our hearts and our lips rise up from us unto our God. It is a confirmation, an affirmation, an acclamation, but it's also a resolution. When we say amen to what is said, it's as if we resolve that we will live our life to the glory of our God. Here is the response of Paul to the truth. That God would be glorified in the sense that he would have the ascription of praise and worship and honor and love and devotion and all those virtues given unto him. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord enable us to glorify God. In the light of what is revealed in His truth, who He is, what He has done, may the doxology rise from our souls as the doctrine is presented in Scripture. May the Lord bless His word to our hearts for His own name's sake. Let's just bow in prayer. And let's look to the Lord, our gracious God and eternal Father. We do believe that in Thyself Thou art all glorious. And yet, Lord, all flesh is to glorify Thee. Lord, we want to do that actively. We want to do that in response to what You have done for us. We thank Thee that Thou art worthy of praise. And we pray, Father, that whatsoever we do, that we would do it all to the glory of God, that we would live in the light of the weightiness of the great God of heaven. Lord, bless thy people. Lord, help us. We often feel at this. Often think of the natural propensity of the heart of sinful man as to, to steal the glory, to look for a little bit of self-glory, a pat on the back, a well done. Oh, Paul was not interested in that. He wanted these people to give glory unto God. 
And therefore, again, we pray with the words of the psalmist, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name. Give glory. Lord, you get glory from your people. And I pray that we would live to glorify thee. Remember us, Lord, around the table. Help us to rejoice and praise and worship and honor thee and obey thee by meeting there to remember the Savior's death until he comes. And then later on in thy will, we pray that you'll bring us again to thy house, the gospel mission. Oh, that thou would be glorified in the hearts of the unsaved as they respond to the truth of the gospel preached, as they humble themselves, bow before the God of heaven, and fall at the feet of the blessed Savior. So, Lord, hear our prayer. Bless the word. Remember those who need to go on. We pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit will go with them. We ask in the Savior's name. Amen.